Well, good morning. morning. It's great to see everybody. Um, Tim tells me he is doing a series on the attributes of God, and so I will be looking at uh, text in Exodus 3 on one of the attributes of God for our time together this morning. So if you want to turn over to Exodus chapter 3, that would be be great. Um, When my kids were born, we tried to come up with... uh, how do we choose names? I don't know how you chose names. We, we kind of looked for Bible names, and then we tried to find a middle name that just kind of sounded good with Finder at the end. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I, I don't know what you guys did, but, but that's kind of what we did, and um, my family's not with me today. Sherry's singing back at our church, and it's, anyway, it's very complicated. But anyway, I was writing a senior ad, not a senior ad, but yeah, writing a senior ad for my daughter, Sarah, and her middle name is Joy. Sarah Joy Finkbeiner. And, and I really kind of worked off of that because, because honestly, when I think about Sarah, she's brought nothing but joy to my life. She's just, she's just she's a stellar young lady. So I wrote up the whole ad thing in light, of, in light of that name. But I can't tell you when she was born that I thought, this child will bring joy to my heart. It just sounded good with Sarah. So we kind of plugged it in. I have a friend who named one of his daughters Kansas. Not for the life of me. I don't know where that ever came from. But I know this, whenever, he's in, whenever she's in class anywhere, nobody else has that name. So there, there, you know, there is an advantage to it. So, you know, we're kind of haphazard the way we do it in America. What rings and sings and we kind of pick it. But that's not the way it is in the scripture. So often, when people are given names... It speaks to their character, and it's, it's extremely important. And, and sometimes God, like in Genesis 17, will, will actually say, I am El Shaddai, to emphasize he, his power and his might is God. But perhaps there's no more memorable place in Scripture where God identifies his name, his character, than in Exodus chapter 3. So come with me there if you would. And I guess I'd have to say this. Everybody in this story desperately needs to know something about God. Think about it. Now, I, I, I hesitate to give you all these dates because I know you'll kind of forget them. But try to stay with me. Just act like you hear me. okay? Because I think you'll see the benefit of it. Joseph dies in Egypt around 1800 BC, roughly, roughly, it's, if it's 1806, we'll just say 1800, around 1800 BC. 80 years after he dies, in 1720, and then going for 150 years, there was a group of foreigners that came into Egypt by the name of the Hyksos, and what they did is they took over the government of Egypt, and the Egyptians were kind of pushed to the west for a period of time, and there was all this tension. And from everything we can see in in, in the scriptures, uh, that was a pretty good time for the Israelites in Egypt. The Hyksos, they were foreigners. The Jews were foreigners. That's a thumbs up. That kind of works. But then, in 1570, the Egyptians came back into power. And they took those Hyksos and they pushed them back into the Palestine area and got rid of them. And their attitude was this. We don't want foreigners in our country. Because 
maybe they're going to rise up and they're going to be like the Hyksos all over again. So what happens in Exodus chapter 1? The Bible says a Pharaoh comes to Egypt who did not know Joseph. And the Hyksos are out and he says to himself, we've got to control these people. We will make them slaves. It's exactly what they did. And then when they still seem to keep multiplying, Pharaoh says to himself, we've got to knock down the numbers here. So let's take the firstborn male and have him killed. Folks, that goes on for over 120 years. What are you thinking about God about that time? 120 years, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. Nothing. Generations come and generations go. And apparently God does nothing. How would you feel if you're a Jew? In that period, a young man is born by the name of Moses. He's born into that whole thing. And for 40 years, as you know, he spends time in the Egyptian court. And when he's the age of about 40, he thinks to himself, he comes out recognizing, knowing that he's an Israelite. He thinks he can probably work something. He sees somebody hurting another Israelite and he kills the Egyptian. And the next day he tries to resolve some things between two, two Israelites. And the one guy says, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And he thinks to himself, I'm dead. They know who I am. I've killed an Egyptian. And he runs for his life to Midian. And he stays there. This would-be deliverer now is in Midian for 40 years. Moses lived 120 years. Uh, you know, in America, what, do we typically live 75, 80? So let's say 75. If you're over 75, God bless you. I, 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 don't, I don't mean that. I know my dad's in his 80s, so I, I, this is not a prophecy or anything like that. Right? But, but take 75. That's just kind of your number. That would mean your first 25 years were thumbs up. Everything was going great. Your next 25 years until you're 50, you're on the backside of a desert. You marry a woman and her dad is a priest of the Midianites. And that's where you sit for 40 years. Where's God? I mean, that's the context of Exodus chapter 3. Stuart in his commentary, says this about Moses. Listen to this. He says, from Moses' point of view, he was now permanently separated both from what he regarded as his homeland, Egypt, and also from the people he now identified with as his own, Israel. Consider then the spiritual challenge that was his. He was a failure as a deliverer of his people, a failure as a citizen of Egypt, unwelcome among either of the nations he might have called his own, a wanted man, a now permanent resident of an obscure place, alone and far from his origins, and among people of a different religion. And that brings us to Exodus 3. 120 years the Israelites are saying, God, help us. And God seems silent. And Moses, the would-be deliverer, spending 40 years on the backside of the desert. Look at what happens then in Exodus chapter 3. Setting we find in verse 1, the Bible says, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. 
he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. I'm not going to get into that whole discussion. I really think at the end of the day, the flame itself was the angel. Okay, but we won't get into that whole discussion. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, hey, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? That's a pretty good thing, right? You're walking along, and all of a sudden you see this bush just burning, and you're saying, hmm, it's not burning up. It's pretty cool. So he goes over to check it out. makes a lot of sense. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I would be thinking, so where are you? He continues. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors and I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and all the otherites that they come across. The The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses said, it's about time, God. Let's do it. (laughs) Does your text say that? Now, if we had time, chapter 3 and 4 is just a whole series of excuses and questions. Every time God does something, Moses said, I got got them. But I'm just wondering about this. Uh, Fair enough. But just right on through, which we're not going to look at all of them, but but it's all what happens in chapters 3 and 4. It's just... It's fascinating in itself. But he goes on to say that Moses asked God, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That was actually a very good question. The the issue was not who was Moses. The issue was who was God, right? Because look at what God says in response. I will certainly be with you and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. I don't know about you. But I want the sign before I go, not after I get back. But that's not what God chose. Okay, that should have been enough, but Moses is giving his second excuse here. Look at what he says. Verse 13. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Well, what should I tell them? God, What name do you want to go by when I talk to them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh. 
The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Now that's pretty important, folks. I don't want to get too caught up in the language and all with you. I'll just say this. And there's debate at every level. Dissertations are written on this section. It's, it's not, but, but here's what I would want to argue at the end of the day. The idea of God saying, I am, and my name is Yahweh, they end up, one just ends up meshing into the other. So from this point on, you won't find another time in the Old Testament that I'm aware of where God says, I am, uh, my name is I am. You will repeatedly find him going by the name Yahweh. But you learn about Yahweh from the expression, I am. Now, there's been some scholars that said, well, you know, what he's doing here is he's just, when Moses says, what's your name? He says, look, I am who I am. I can do whatever I want. You just tell him I am have sent you and God is evasive. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think God is saying this. I am the eternal, self-existent one. Your creature, I'm creator. Eternal, self-existent. I am now who I am at all times. I am also the unchanging one. Do you think it felt like that for the uh, Israelites at this point? They're thinking, hey, could you do some of that stuff you did for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And God said, my timing is not always your timing. But I am who I am. And for all generations, I will be known as Yahweh. Now here's what I find as I read the passage. A couple things. I guess I'd say it like this. The expression Yahweh or I am. Are you, are you staying with me? It's not getting too... Okay, we're all together. Okay, great, great. I, but I don't know what else to do but explain it to you because I don't want you to go, go away and not understand it. Here's the point. I'm thinking, if God is the self-existent, eternal, unchanging one, then he's the God who is way up there. Right? And the problem is, we're way down here. And that's what, the, I mean, at one level, I suppose you could say, when they would come in and say, okay, Moses, who sent you to us, the Israelites? The unchanging, eternal, self-existent one. Yeah, but what's that going to do for us now? I mean, wouldn't you kind of feel that way? And here's the point. Yahweh's name, when it's used, does refer to that but it always is connected with something else, folks, and it's this. The God who is there has come near to act. See, that's the point. He is the self-existent one. He doesn't need us. Before we were, he was. After we're gone, he will be. That's God. That's all true. He's the existent one, the self-existent one. He's eternal. He's unchanging. Yet he has come near. And he says, I want you to use Yahweh because I'm not merely saying that. I'm saying the one who is there is the only one who can really come near and act on your behalf. In his time, in his way, for his purposes. That's how it works. Chapter 6 of Exodus. 
picks up on the same theme. Flip over there for just a second. And you know what happens. Moses goes through all those excuses and finally throws up his arms and says, all right, I'll take Aaron with me and I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to Pharaoh. We'll kind of do this deal. So he goes to Pharaoh and he gives his speech. You know what Pharaoh does? Pharaoh says, I don't know Yahweh. I don't know who that is. Sometimes Some of the translations say Jehovah. I don't know who that is. You know what I'm going to do? All of these Israelites are going to work much harder because I'm going to give them less of what they need, but they're going to have to continue to make bricks, as many bricks. That's what Pharaoh does. And you know what happens in chapter 5? The people start to complain. They go back to Pharaoh and they say, Pharaoh, we can't do this. It's tough luck, man. Do it or else. And then they go to Moses and look at chapter 5. If you would, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. I mean, things go from bad to worse, folks. Chapter 5, verse 20. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to him, because you have made us reek in front of Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. You know what they're saying? Moses, go home. Leave us alone. You've made our life even worse. How are you feeling if you're Moses at this time? He didn't want to do this. He did 40 years. He came up with every excuse imaginable, and still he's forced, and he gets there, and he says his deal. And he says to himself, this is exactly what I thought would happen. Look what the text says. So Moses, verse 22 of chapter 5. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people. And you haven't delivered your people at all. But the Lord replied to Moses. Now you are going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. He will let them go because of my strong hand. He will drive them out of his land because of my strong hand. Then God said to Moses telling him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty. But I did not make my name make my name, Yahweh, known to them. Not in this kind of climactic way. I mean, you guys, Moses, are going to see something about my power to act in light of my name in a way that none of the patriarchs did. This is man upping the ante. It's going to be incredible. Watch. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as foreigners. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves. And I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, you tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh. And I, the self-existent, unchanging, eternal one, the God who is there, has come near. And I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who delivers you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. And you know the rest of the story, don't you folks? One plague after another plague. After another plague till Pharaoh finally throws up his hands and says, get out of here. And they leave. And then he tries to come and get them later. 
And God gives the great victory at the crossing of the Red Sea. And when they cross that Red Sea, they look back and all they see is Yahweh. The unchanging, self-existent creator God who now is acting in a climactic way for his namesake and for the good of his people. And he comes into history and he doesn't... And folks, listen, if you're a Jew living all the way during the Old Testament period, do you know what event you go back to again and again and again? It's right here, isn't it? The Jews again and again, when they think of Yahweh God who is active for his people, they turn around and they say, ah, remember what he did for us when we were in Egypt. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when, when sons come to fathers and say, Dad, why do we have to do all these things? Moses says, you tell your son about Yahweh who has stepped into history and acted climatically for his people. That's why we serve him at the end of the day. You say, Doug, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Christian. And folks, I was thinking about this this week. It is true, the God who is there has come near to climatically act for his people. That's what Yahweh does. But when you come to the New Testament, the whole ante gets upped, doesn't it? Everything changes. I want you to think about this. Um, Keller put me onto this, and I thought it was extremely helpful. Um, Dorothy Sayer was a uh, playwright. That lit, I think she died around 1950, but she, she wrote detective novels and mysteries and so forth. And one of her characters, his name was uh, Lord Peter Whimsey. He was kind of the detective guy. And, and so, you know, he'd find somebody who was dead and he'd be the guy that had to figure out the whole crime and what happened and so on and so forth. And a whole series of books. She writes a whole series of books on this. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Dorothy Sayers, she was the first woman to be able to go to Oxford University. Can you imagine that? I mean, in our day today, we think, are you kidding yeah, but, but in the early 1900s? Yeah, that's the way it was. So she was a playwright and had gone to Oxford University. Toward the end, her last couple books, she introduced a woman into the story that many literary critics say is actually her. Because the character was the first woman that went to Oxford, and she was a detective playwright. And it, and it is as if she created this, this world. She so loved this character that she chose to actually write herself in as a character into the story. And that's exactly what God has done. Isn't it? In the person of his son, God has written himself into our story, folks. And it's not fiction. It's the real thing. And so you come to John chapter 1. And you read about the word was with God. And the word was God. God of very God. The son. And he chose to come and tabernacle among the people of 
the, his people. Some will reject, some will accept, but he's here because he loves. God has come near in the most climactic way imaginable by coming himself, folks. He writes himself into the story of history as Jesus Christ. You read Matthew chapter 1. And Joseph is told, you're going to call him Jesus from Joshua, the Old Testament. Because he will deliver his people from Pharaoh? No. He will deliver his people from their sins. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is written into our story, so God is with us to deliver us from our sins. Is there anything more climactic than that act of Yahweh on our behalf? Nothing, folks. The God who is there, the unchanging, self-existent, eternal God, has come near in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. We read John 1. We, we read Matthew 1. It's all over the place. And there's this one fascinating passage in John chapter 8 and verse 58. You remember this passage? It's the only time you find the I am expression used referring back to Exodus 3 in the Gospel of John. Jesus will use I am the bread of life. He used a variety of things, but, but not in this way. And in John 8, oh, the religious leaders are so upset with Jesus and they're trying to counter him and say this. And I mean, it's one of the hardest texts in which they use attacking words for Jesus. They say he's demon-possessed. They say he's illegitimate. I mean, they're whipping everything at him through John chapter 8. And you get to the end of John chapter 8. And they say, how can you say all that stuff? You didn't know Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I know there's some Jehovah Witnesses who have looked at the text like that and said, no, that just means I existed. That is baloney both from the grammar and from the context. Because you remember how they responded? They picked up stones to kill him. So here is Jesus, God with us. He says, you want to know who I am? Before Abraham was, I am. That's me in the Godhead. I'm God. And the people didn't like it. Let me give you one more passage. I'm going to have you turn over there with me. And then, then I'm going to wrap it up and let you go. Would you come with me for just a moment over to Philippians chapter 2. I, I, love, I love this passage. Philippians chapter 2. Just to kind of help with this. If you wouldn't mind also having your finger back in Isaiah chapter 45. In verse 23. Philippians chapter 2. You know this. It's a beloved text. Where we find out in, 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 in Philippians chapter 2. That Jesus Christ humbled himself. And it talks about him, him coming. Becoming a servant. But not just any servant. A man. And living and dying. But not dying anyway. But actually dying on the cross. So you find Jesus Christ descending into greatness. Don't you? In Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 to 8. But look at what verse 9 says. This is very, very important in light of what we're talking about. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And I want to know what that one is, folks. What's that name? The name that is above every name. Man, I want to get to that one. 
Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now there are some scholars that have argued that the name that is above every name is the name Jesus. Jesus, I love the name Jesus. But I don't think that's the point of this text. Jesus Christ will be confessed as who in verse 11? Who? Lord. Now, I don't want to get Greeky on you, but stay with me. Okay, please, stay with me because I don't, I, I'm going to see the significance. You all know, or if you don't, I'll tell you, that the Old Testament was also translated into Greek and we call it the Septuagint, right? And what you find is Yahweh's name is translated typically kurios in the Greek. And here's what else you find. And I, in, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul is going back to Isaiah 45, 23. And if you go back to Isaiah 45, 23, you have this promise of God as to how he's going to act on behalf of people. Isaiah 45, 23 says this, By myself I have sworn Truth has come from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said to me, only in the Lord, or only in Yahweh, is righteousness and strength. You know what Paul is telling us in Philippians? What Jesus confessed in John 8, Exodus 3, is about me. Paul declares in Philippians 2 because he says, you know what? Way back in Isaiah chapter 45, when God was speaking, I am Yahweh and I will act on behalf of my people. And, and people that reject me will bow to me one way or the other, either as judge or savior. That's it. That's all the choices they have. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the unchanging, self-existent, eternal one who's become a man. And the Father has chosen to honor him in light of his submission by declaring he is Yahweh. Isn't that great? We're coming to Christmas. And I want you to remember something, folks. The God who is there has come near in the person of Jesus Christ. If you know him, you know that. And it, it, it matters. It matters the difficulty and pains and hardships of circumstances. I'm not diminishing that at all, folks. I know that. But it can't compare because you and I know that he has come near in the person of his son. And he's ours. And that changes everything. And it is true. For those that choose not to bow the knee now in submission to him. They will one day in eternity bow the knee to Christ as Yahweh. But then it will be too late.
go forth in this Christmas season and tell people the God who is there has come near in the person of the Son. Father,